So today, Wendy and I are talking to my good friend, Michelle Varian. She is dialing in from New York City. She owns and operates this beautiful, magical boutique in Brooklyn um, that I stumbled upon almost eight years ago now and have really learned so much from. We worked together on opening a shop, and we're talking about entrepreneurship from a lens of really understanding and respecting the hands of the makers. She's going to share her story of entrepreneurship, how her childhood has informed her way of appreciating the makers and the contributors to the products in her store, and also a bit about her own custom line. All right. Hello, hello. We're back with Wendy and Norma, and we have a special guest for one of our very first Transactional Love episodes. Hi, Norma. (laughs) Hi, Michelle. We're very excited to be here with you today. Michelle, thank you for dialing in. You're sitting in New York. We are in San Francisco, but thanks to technology, we're able to be together again. Merge the coast. Merge the coast. For someone who doesn't have access to social media, LinkedIn, and is just meeting you on the street for the first time. How would you describe what you do and and what your brand is? I've had a store for over 20 years, and I started with my own collections of home goods, primarily decorative pillows, again, because I could design the fabrics, etc., and make something that didn't exist already. And, and on top of that, now I've layered more collections that I design and manufacture, all home goods, lighting, wallpapers, as well as home textiles and some furniture. But then in addition to that, it, I carry product from over 100 other designers, much of it pieces that are one of a kind or people who have actually never sold in stores before. Um, it's been a great thing because I used to go looking for pieces like that. Now those people find me, which Mm. is really nice. Mm -hmm. They send me an email or they drop by the shop and they say, how do we, how do I present this to Michelle? And just always looking for things that you are not likely to find online. And, and I think also, so it's a a full lifestyle shop that's mostly home goods, but we also sell gobs of jewelry, which Norma knows. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud of (laughs) Norma. And so I think that the main thing, and I think what most people respond to in brick and mortar is it, it, my shop has a strong point of view, unabashedly so. I only buy things I like. Yes. That I want to own. And I would say your taste is so identifiable. I can walk into a place that you've curated or a place that you've designed or the, the products that you create in addition to what you make. And it's so Michelle. How would you describe that essence? I can't put into words, but if you had to, what would you say those words are? Uh, it's interesting. We have a neighbor who used to live above us who was a art critic. And and he came to me one day, and we had become friends. And, and he said, it took me a while to really figure out how to articulate what what is special about what you do mm-hmm. and what your aesthetic is. I was flattered that he even cared to try and figure it out. <laughs> I love I mean, this. Um, I, I think I'm trying great. to figure it out. I think it's great that you are so lucky to have an art critic living above you. What perfect well, he pairing. He anymore, unfortunately. Right. He's fantastic. We loved him. And, and so he said, you really respond to and everything you have reflects the hand of the person who made it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, okay, I'm using that from now on. No wonder you're an art, mm-hmm. <laughs> successful art critic. 
And and that's true. Like I really, outside of actual like design trends, I like I I truly am an admirer of humanity yeah. and our achievements and abilities and the celebration of all that we can do. And I think one of the things that that I have struggled with, and I think that by having my shop actually helps, is that there's a perception that everything can be made by a machine better Mm -hmm. than what we've been doing for thousands of years. And that's just not true. And their machines are actually wildly inefficient doing many things, especially doing anything that's one of a kind, wildly inefficient, doesn't make any sense at all. And the idea of the personality of the person, it sounds a little bit corny, but it is imbued with who that person is, whether they can identify it and visualize it themselves, they don't even know they're doing it. And I love that. And I love being able to see we sell light fixtures and that we we switched who was processing our metal and I didn't like what they were doing because they were polishing them too much mm. which removed the element texture. of what yeah of texture and so I love the lathe marks from the spinning of the metal on the machines and I was like no I want to keep those it's indicative of the process right. and I really like that and like on our pillows, I, they're all designed with a tie closure with an insert flap. One, so there's no hard element. There's no zippers. Mm-hmm. But also, it celebrates how it's put together. Yeah. And it's okay. This is a mecha- very simple mechanics. You tie a knot. <laughs> yeah. What? Do but you, it functions. Yeah. Do you think that the way that you view art, production, design was inspired or informed by how you grew up. Tell us a little bit more about your background and story growing up and how you got to where you are now. (laughs) Sure, sure. I grew up in Detroit, and my parents bought a turn-of-the-century historical uh, house in a historic neighborhood and absolutely did not have the resources to hire people to do all of the work necessary. It still had knob and tube electrical. Oh, my God. And... You know, so we had to tear all of that out, et cetera. And who did that? My parents, my sisters and I. Yeah, I was like, and you. <laughs> and so like before DIY became a thing, mm-hmm. it, that's the way I grew up. And it really made me appreciate what goes into making things. Mm-hmm. And I also really love, again, just the simplicity, the elegance of simple mechanics and the way things work. And, and really amplifying that but that growing up just figuring out how to do things it was like we had the time life how-to books like encyclopedias and when I moved to New York and got my first apartment on my own it's like each Christmas I'd get a new one of those issues from my parents as a Christmas gift and so it's like, how did I figure out how to do electrical? Okay, I know it's like very simple. There's positive, negative, and grounding. And not only have I applied that to the spaces that I have lived in, and then like each of the storefronts that I've had, where I've been very either done, literally done the demoing and renovation myself, mm-hmm. or been you know on site doing a lot of it with others. 
and it allowed me to launch my own collection of lighting. So I was like, I know how that works. It doesn't intimidate me. I can yeah. figure this out. Yeah. And I found that very empowering. And living in a place like New York, where, especially when I first moved here, it was almost entirely rental. People didn't know how to do anything. Right. They called the super. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were like a rogue woman on the streets of New York, making things happen and doing it yourself. That's amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, I, yeah. A woman came in once. She wasn't American. She was um, Japanese, actually. And she came in and she had purchased a lamp from us. And she came in with the lamp and she said, "It's not working anymore. Um, can I get a replacement?" And I looked at it and and. I was like, did you try changing the lights? And oh she didn't God. know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. I think you also dedicating yourself to learning. Mm-hmm. And it created yeah. that respect for makers and artisans. And there's this ability that once we can take on and have that experience, then we respect it when others do it, right? Mm-hmm. And we really see that process as beauty versus it as just a step for the end goal which I really love about what you do. It's very interesting not to make this about me at all, but I have a similar sort of like appreciation developed in the same way. Like my dad was like a jack of all trades handyman and my first job in high school was at a hardware store. So seeing how things are built and made like really inspires Mm -hmm. and informs my aesthetic as well. Like we to give respect to others that absolutely process. Yeah. So Michelle also forms the way you think. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Exactly. One of my biggest critiques of society today is that we've lost our ability to think critically and problem solve. And we we rely on machines to take care of a lot of things for us. We rely on other people, quote unquote, experts to tell us how we should do something instead of doing that simple thing of exercising our own like magical brains inside our bodies, spending the time to develop ourselves to approach it on our own way. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) And so, Michelle, as you were going through this journey, what brought you to that aha moment of opening up your own store, starting your business? What led you to where you found yourself opening Michelle Varian? So I'm not really a master planner. (laughs) I really believe in... It wasn't an intentional plan or MO even to respond to serendipity, but I have mad respect for serendipity Mm -hmm. and people recognize it and respond to it in a positive way. And the chaos of life, we can't control. And I think sometimes trying to have a master plan is really naive and not satisfying because there's too much we cannot control. Mm -hmm. Would you say you have a North Star Maybe not a master plan, but does something guide you? No. Yeah. I would say. (laughs) Resounding. I love that. (laughs) True serendipity. Well, I feel very fortunate. I love my life. Mm -hmm. I get to pursue my creative interests and have been able to figure out how to to turn that into a viable business Mm -hmm. that people actually care about and want to participate in. I feel like, yay, I win. (laughs) (laughs) How many people get to say that? And I'm flattered every time somebody comes back and Mm. says that they love our shop. And, and yeah, I feel it it never gets old. I never take that for granted. And so I guess that's my North Star. My husband's a musician. We both do creative 
managed to make our living doing creative things. And I think we feel very fortunate and mm. lucky that, and for both of us, it's not a side gig. It's not our side hustle. It's our main hustle. Yeah. So yay us. Um, what I guess is less of an aha moment and more of just really responding to serendipity was that I had already started my own business. And, and the reason that I started my own business was because I started in fashion design and I loved it. I loved designing clothing. I still love clothing. But what was very difficult was that I worked really long hours, mm -hmm. which I didn't resent that, except for when the end product wasn't what I had envisioned. Mm -hmm. And usually that was because something beyond my control happened. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about working at larger companies and you've got very siloed responsibilities. You've got a team that addresses this and a team that addresses that. And as the design team, I, I could control that. I could even control how production was supposed to look and happen. But if somebody didn't order the fabric on time from the merchandising team, it, it was like starting over again yeah. with usually a substandard substitute for what it was supposed to be. And working those kinds of hours and not being... Fruits. Not being proud yeah. of the end product was not okay. And so I decided I wanted to start my own thing. And, and I had already started my own business and had been selling. I was very fortunate. I sold to Barney's and Neiman Marcus almost right away. Mm. Did you have some connections that you were able to leverage mm -hmm. in order to get that going? From work in fashion, I had cultivated very positive relationships. And, and I think... One of the things that I, I don't think can be said enough is how important it is to recognize that every person that you engage with in life is valuable. Yes. And, and to think that anything you do is inconsequential and you can treat somebody poorly because you're, they're not going to impact your future life is incredibly naive. And, and I treated the people I worked with very well. And so one of the things that, you know, and like I'm older, so I started my own company and it was 2000 and the internet was so nascent then. It was a baby and not really integrated into our world and lives. And so I had worked with all these fabric manufacturers and showrooms and things while I still work at a big company in fashion, but they were really kind and generous to me when I decided to do my own thing sewing rooms would do really small runs for me and not charge me for samples. Fabric yeah. showrooms would normally have a 500 to a thousand dollars or a thousand yard, which equates to tens of thousands yeah. of dollars for a single roll of fabric in order to make a sample, which may or may not work would allow me to buy 10 yards because I had worked with them and treated them properly. And that was huge. I wouldn't have been able to start if they hadn't made those concessions for me. And I felt it was audacious to even ask for those kinds of concessions. Right. Who am I not very special, right? But I was fortunate that there were people who had that experience already who could become a new great business relationship. And I really benefited from that. And so I think making sure to recognize that in others and give them a leg up can really be powerful. And then the reason I opened a shop was after 9-11, all of the trade shows were canceled. And I had been selling to Barney's and Neiman Marcus, et cetera, right? Neiman Marcus was in Texas. 
Mm-hmm. And I sold to stores around the country. I had a pretty wide distribution right away. But because it was before the internet really was what it has become, there was no way for anyone to see new product unless they came to the trade show. Yeah. And so having them be canceled and no one traveling to New York was devastating suddenly. I was like, oh, geez. And so I had my last big check from, I can't remember now if it was Neiman Marcus or Barney, but I saw a for rent sign as I walked between my apartment and my now husband's apartment, which was just a couple blocks away from each other. And it was in the window of the messenger service that I used to use in order mostly to send samples mm-hmm. to buyers. Like, mm-hmm. and, and then, and the messenger service was, they were right around the corner from my apartment. So we became friendly and they're like, no, we can keep it here for you. You can pick it up later. They were just, there was, it was old school neighborhood community. Yeah. Stuff, just you know? Community. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. And you had that history there. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. it was already the and beginning always, of something. Yeah. And they had a, um, a turn of the century bicycle in the window of this courier service Cute. and it was a big front wheel, right? Yeah. Their soul and is your soul. Complaint. Yeah. Yeah, and then I saw that they'd gone out of business. It was after 9-11, and there was a for rent sign, and all the trade shows had been canceled. And I looked at it, and I was like, okay, I, if stores aren't going to come and purchase my product, I'll just open my own store. <laughs> and literally, <laughs> like, less than a week later, I signed a lease for that space. Wow. Yes. And, yes. and without a master plan, like, which I love. No, no master plan. <laughs> yeah. and, and then a week after that, opened. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about that, Michelle, that that maybe in your mind you took the leap without being ready? Because I do think entrepreneurship is so much that is saying yes, yes before you think you should be saying yes. yes. And can you talk a little bit about your mindset and any advice you would give to other entrepreneurs in that moment? I think it's like a lot like when people talk about having children and is it ever the perfect time? Yeah. It's like when it happens is when it happens. And again, going back to serendipity and recognizing opportunity and not missing it. And being critical enough to also recognize that maybe it isn't the right time. But mostly, I think entrepreneurship fundamentally is for brave people. Mm-hmm. It's, That's beautiful. There are so many... It used to be one of the things that I, I thought many times people were like, oh, people come to me and talk to me. They're like, my friends, I just talked to you. I'm thinking about opening up a business, blah, blah, blah. Here's my business card. And this is my logo. And, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> but what's your business? What are you, what is the crux of all of this? And I met a lot of people who got really into their stationery and logos <laughs> before yeah. they'd actually launched their business. And I bet most of them never launched a business. Yeah. It's, it's messy. It's not perfect. And you have to be scrappy and you have to be fearless. Can you talk a and, little bit about preparation versus gut? Like, okay, this is, this feels right versus having your ducks in a row, right? What is the balance? Cause I would say you probably were, yes, this is it. I'm going to sign this lease without a plan. And she, <laughs> her business is all about projections and forecasting as yeah. well. Like fabric manufacturing and design and actual production that all takes a lot of time and energy. So there's obviously plans that happen. That's your wheelhouse too. It's not all just like gut instinct. So 
I'm interested You'd too about flagged. that balance. Oh, yeah, what was your balance? <laughs> Maybe it's 10% like planning and 90% gut, but what, it, what does that feel like for you? Yeah, I, as a kid, I was much more tightly wound in lots of ways. I did have plans. I was going to do this. I was going to do that. I wanted to earn money and we never had money growing up. <laughs> and in high school, believe it or not, that really shifted for me because I started hanging out with some friends who were exactly the opposite and were just like that you could get hit by a truck tomorrow and then you haven't had any fun. And that really resonated with me. And I was like, okay, I can be ambitious. I can be scrappy and do what I want, but I need to be having fun every day that I do it. Mm -hmm. And so I am not much of a planner. I also, I've made a lot of life choices that allow me to not have to plan and be so rigid. We chose not to have children. We live in a rental. Like our, I have a very non-committal like elements in my life. Mm-hmm. I don't have huge expenses beyond my business. It is my baby and, and that's what I invest in. And I honestly, it's not every season I say, okay, this is my budget. This is how I spend. That is not what I do at all. I am not like big box retail mentality. Mm-hmm. I am ex- extremely responsive. And a big part of how I run things is based on what I see and feel. It is so gut. Mm. And I don't look at any trend forecast, and I never have. And when I worked in fashion and people, the directors of the company would be like, okay, now we want you all to go see this trend forecast and this and that. I'd be like, I don't want to go see the trend forecast. I don't want to see what everybody else is doing. By the time somebody has established that it's a trend, it's already happening. And I found that being in the world was how you are always ahead of the trend. And so when I still worked in fashion, I remember when quote unquote grunge Mark Jacobs collection came out. And I was like, clearly he's been going out where all of my friends and I go out because this is the way we look. <laughs> you know? And and grunge came out of rust belt industrial city mentality and celebration of that. And so like it, it comes it percolates up instead of being top down. And that's what I pay attention to. Yeah. I love that. And I think that it dovetails into this like next sort of question I have, which is about your like customer. Who do you think your customer is? So you're responding to what you feel Mm -hmm. and what's happening. So how do you think your customers engage with you on that level? Because they're not coming to you looking for a blue pillow. They're looking for a Michelle Varian pillow. So most of the time, yes. And Although you'd be surprised. A lot of people are like, I've got to have blue. <laughs> anyway, and I'm like, you could put the pillow somewhere else. But <laughs> that, that's my right. thing. And so I have to say, I really love our customer. And I'm, again, I just feel very lucky that the customer base that I have cultivated is it's primarily creative professionals who have strong design conviction themselves. Mm -hmm. Like we do have interior designers who shop with us, 
but we have a lot of end users who like they they are successful at what they do. They're movie makers or photographers or stylists, et cetera. And then some of them are just uh, people. They're not label people. They're not, they don't need validation. It's quiet, right? They are more like me who really just wants to see things they haven't seen before and get excited when they can see the value, like how it was made and recognize the process. But also, what are the new ideas? Mm -hmm. I, I really value the fact that people come because they feel it's, stimulating they will it's like going to a gallery and a gallery that you can shop without it feeling I was thinking yeah it's it's this art that you can bring home that you you get to connect with the artist in a really meaningful way and whenever you look at your couch or your favorite chair you get re-inspired by that moment that artifact that whole expression that came from another human and I think you're right. I think there's some like soul exchange that happens with your clients and your the products that you not only curate for your shop, but also make yourself that, that allows them to bring other energy into their spaces to help them curate their own energy place. Yes. And yeah. having been your customer for many years now, <laughs> I, I feel that you absolutely hit the nail on the head with this appreciation for design and art mm-hmm. and beauty whether you're trained in the space or just you have this kind of affinity towards it. And I think there's this timelessness and elegance that you bring, going back to the art critic comment around really respecting the craft. I think there's also this layer that it's not just craft, but I think it's through the lens of beauty that isn't luxury. It's not unattainable. It's not unapproachable. It's actually the opposite of that. And I love your store that I could walk in and if it's a certain moment in my life, I could spend $5 and walk away with this beautiful product that has a story and layer and depth. Or I could come back and purchase a piece of jewelry that I will have for the rest of my life, right? And I've, I've had both of those experiences. How you curate also describes how your customer and your audience follows you. It's through the lens of beauty that is attainable. And to me, that's something that I, you can't find <laughs> easily, I should say, because luxury to me has become this conversation of price but mm-hmm. I don't think truly is what you're putting out in terms of luxury for this space it's about beauty right and accessibility which I love accessibility has always been extremely important to me having started in fashion design and having grown up in circumstances that were modest and I was intimidated by a lot of places that made me feel like I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And I never want to create that environment ever. And yes, we do sell things that are $5. That is very intentional because I want people to feel comfortable and that, that they are not excluded from the experience, that they can come in and just wander around and walk out the door with nothing. Or if they feel really good, they can walk out the door with something that is very inexpensive, but just a lovely little indulgence that makes them feel good, get their endorphin pump. But without it being about label or status or all of those things. And And going back to um, the gallery comment, um, one thing that you do as well is tell the story of the piece so you can walk around and read mm-hmm. where it came from and a bit more in detail. And I'd love that. Every single object in your store has a story. Mm-hmm. We have a little card with information for each of the items. And sometimes it's as simple as what the, the materials are and, and where they're made. 
sometimes they're a little cheeky. I like to see if people are paying attention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if I can see somebody giggle or laugh. Plus. Yeah. Yeah. What has been your favorite project to work on as of late? Yeah, I really love designing and the fact that I'm able to manufacture a lot of my products in-house and work directly with my staff to make things come together is extremely, extremely satisfying. I refer to it as micro-manufacturing mm-hmm. because I realize if you call it craft, people don't take it seriously as an economic driver. These are all skills that people can take and utilize in other ways. And you never know what innovations are going to be like the drivers of some major economic change. You never know. Right. And and But we're giving people the skills to do those things. And I love being part of the process and being able to work with them on that. And I've also really enjoyed hosting events in my shop. And Norma, I did a lot of things like hosted these design talk panels that really engaged with and tried to address a lot of the things that weren't being talked about in the retail design community, especially with the disruption of the internet, and really trying to talk through a lot of the rhetoric and narrative and hype to reality. And I feel, especially with social media, getting to reality and ignoring hype, recognizing what is hype is really important because things get amplified so fast now. And like fear of missing out makes people, they pretend they understand things when they don't. And so hosting panel discussions at the store, which we, I have not resumed since the end of the pandemic, of course was forced to stop all of that. And Norma, I think we were organizing our first really big panel discussion in DC, right at the Mm -hmm. beginning of the pandemic and was shut down. So we of course canceled, but just engaging and using the space to do that, I find really valuable. And it was my best attended events are not product and selling events. My best attended events are knowledge and information events. Mm -hmm. People want to understand and we aren't doing a very good job getting good information out there. Do you think what you're creating as a community and saying, I belong to this tribe that cares about design and beauty and craft and all these beautiful things that you have in your store? There's definitely that. There's all of that. But like the other business owners that would show up, they're not my customers. They don't really get anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yes, there's a sense of community. But I think I was, I tapped into something that wasn't being addressed and there was a need for it. Yes. And, and having, bringing the right people to the table to have really transparent conversations about things that people traditionally didn't talk about, margins how you present things for press coverage, lots of different topics, real estate, the assumption that market is just always going to be these um, inaccessible numbers. But okay, how do we change that? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we make our voices heard? Because people are assuming that it's okay when it's not. And, And so that's just doing things that are informative and sharing information has been really gratifying. And probably something called the 50 at 50 party Mm -hmm. a couple years ago. But it was for my 50th birthday. 
Oh, surprising. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all of the media celebrates 20 at 20, oh, 30. I know. Possibly 30, 40. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I still feel very I'm still fun. Yeah, I'm still producing really cool new things. Yeah, <laughs> and, amazing. Yeah, I love that. And, and it was interesting, too. So I invited 50 other designers of product, and we had a mutual birthday party. Who were and I, I had to do real digging to find out who was also turning fifty that year. <laughs> I love and it. So it was fifty. A lot of friends, friends Michelle. Fifty people <laughs> having the same year. Oh, you'd be surprised. I love you, it. You probably have if you start thinking they're there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and so it had fifty designers and this iconic what had become an iconic element of the store were these silly cast iron pigeons that we sold. They were realistic looking, but they were cast iron. And made great doorstops, whatever. But mostly they were just silly. And so I had each of the designers all decorate the pigeons. Mm-hmm. And we auctioned them off at the party. I love it. And all of the proceeds went towards a design um, scholarship fund for Parsons, which is where I went to school. Mm-hmm. And it's wildly expensive. So as long as it, the funds go to somebody that was really fun but it was interesting there were a number of people who were like how did you know like how old I was (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people who didn't really want to be outed (laughs) I love it that's funny Okay, since we're getting more personal, I want to know more about your morning routine what's your ritual like (laughs) to like access your day every day I am a morning person more and more so as I get older like quiet time and I First thing I do is have coffee. I am old school. I've got a Neapolitan coffee maker, stainless steel one that goes on the stove, on a burner. I whip the milk myself with a whisk on the stove in a pot. And I'm kind of just that mechanical, simple. As my brain is waking up, I have this ritual that I do every morning. And, And during the... I kick off a couple of times a week. In the morning is usually, I talk to my dad a lot in the mornings. It's when I read the news, catch up on whatever urgent thing may have landed in my inbox the night before because now retail is 24-7. I could have received an email at 2 a.m. from a customer who has an urgent whatever. Um, And part of that is just looking at the news. And I spent a lot of time talking to my dad about it and my friend, my who trains me for kickboxing twice a week in the morning um, is also from Detroit. So we go way back and have very aligned views on a lot of things. And, and he's very well informed as well. And so we talk about things and, and that's usually how I start my day during the pandemic. I went for walks each morning with a very good friend who did most of the talking during kickboxing. I talk a lot because mm-hmm. I don't really want to be kickboxing, although I find it very cathartic. <laughs> Big punching things is very cathartic. Better to do that than take it out on somebody else. I love and it. Get it out early in the day. <laughs> yeah, and then during our walks, I usually was quiet most of the time. And, and Norma can tell you, I'm, and I think anybody can see, I'm a big talker. <laughs> but in I a good way. I really like, like the, the just like the parks and stuff and even like the bridges during the pandemic, the city was so empty. It was glorious. Mm-hmm. And and it was just really lovely to just be quiet and watch the light and leaves and things. I just found that really lovely. There is beauty and in respect. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So that's generally it. While I'm waiting for my coffee to brew, I putter and tidy the kitchen. And then it begins. So <laughs> what you're trying to tell us is you're a normal human being. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. <laughs> oh, and I have to do my spelling bee every morning now. Sadly, oh. it's become a bit obsessive. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. You're the legend in my mind of retail, but how do you shop? Two-part question. What's your most memorable... Mm-hmm recent purchase and then what do you splurge on what's your ultimate just give yourself permission to splurge i do splurge on shoes and coke mm. those are two places where they have to be good yeah and, appropriate to invest and in. yeah it's like a, a coat i i did many of my coats have been vintage and unfortunately i have not been able to find good replacements for them and i had to retire a few a really good ones that make me very sad. But I did purchase a pair of boots recently that are pretty, pretty great. They're knee-high heels that are in the most glorious shade of blue. I I will say Michelle has the best style. So if if, (laughs) just go stalk her online for all the inspiration, the best style. And it's such a great eclectic mix of pieces that, again, they, they have meaning. I'm sure like they have story, they have meaning. I'm sure you're thinking about how you're purchasing in addition to what you're purchasing. Can you tell us a little bit about how you shop? I'm just curious about your psychology and how you collect the things that you have. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I now own more than I need. Mm -hmm. And so I am extremely selective. And in most of the pieces that I buy, with the exception of having to replace t-shirts to wear to the gym, I end up really trying to buy things that are distinctive in some way or another partially too because I want to look distinctive Mm. so I try to I've been so fortunate that so many people support my business and my shop I try to support smaller businesses uh, and uh, and those are the places I enjoy shopping in the the intimacy and, and the feeling that what I'm looking at isn't everywhere else and yeah. I won't see somebody else yeah. walking down the street wearing it. That's a good way to put it. Intimacy and curiosity. You know? I love that. Yeah. And well-made. I do like quality and knowing how damaging mass production can be and mass consumerism can be. Mm-hmm. It's so much better for us if we spend more on fewer things that last. Less goes in landfills. Yeah. I do think about those things. I don't have anything out of non-sustainable materials in my home or my store. I don't sell plastic things. Mm-hmm. So it ends up filling up landfills and soiling. It doesn't biodegrade. And so yeah. it ends up just creating more toxicity in the world. And we don't need more of that. Yeah. The amount of things that you and I align on is, it's <laughs> insane. I, yeah. I'm curious. Do you feel like there's a way that we can start to shift the conversation and people's buying habits into sort of, focusing on exactly that. Like I personally don't have an Amazon account and Norm and I have talked about this multiple times throughout this series, but it's like a personal commitment I've made. And I think that exactly what you said, spending more on less is the right answer, but we're so conditioned to believe that we need to collect and buy and Mm -hmm. spend on, on trash essentially that yeah, that it makes people feel good to spend that money that way so it, yes. is there a way that we can course correct that you know of or c- can think about in a five-second response? 
<laughs> solve the world problems, yeah. Can you Michelle. Solve this in five, with me? <laughs> we have I think that this, the pandemic, we're going to end up looking back at some things. And I, I think some things are already very clear mm-hmm. that have been transformative. And one of them is appreciation for how things are made because of the supply chain issues. Right. And I, I wrote letters to Paul Krugman, like, <laughs> you're getting it wrong. You've got to start right, but not all the way. I was like, a big part of what's happening with inflation isn't because people have too much money. A lot of it is because all of a sudden a container ship got stuck in the wrong port on the other side of the world. And now we're paying the cost of shipping it back empty. And so having that spread out supply chain, we now recognize how vulnerable that is. Yeah. And it made people suddenly really think about, oh, these things are coming from the other side of the world. Is that really a good way for us to be doing these things? And I often I go to places like Ikea and I'm like, how can this cost yes. what it costs when I know how much it costs to ship something this big from the other side of the world? And, and, I'm and that like, question, I don't know how to do it. Yeah, that question <laughs> is, okay, there's more answers back there that we don't really want to know. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. We don't want to know. A lot of people don't want to know. But I do think that because of the supply chain issues, some people, many people who would never have thought about those got things. Got curious. Got curious. And there ends up being a very natural pushback mm-hmm. and hunger for that which we've lost. And so I think even though it's digital platforms that are amplifying it, people showing how things are made and people have more visibility into that than they used to. And also there is a very, for me, it's frustrating, a a perception in the modern world that everything can be made by machines. Right. And it's like a Dr. Seuss or something cartoon where Mm -hmm. uh, you just put raw materials into a chute and, you know, like a a vending machine, push a button for what you want and it pops out the other side. And that's just not the way it works. Even where machines are used for parts of the process of manufacturing, it's still relatively minimal. And they're only... Um, efficient of doing a lot of the same thing over and over again. So you're going to end up with cookie cutter everything if we rely on that and we lose the ability to actually make things ourselves and innovate. And even like if you're going to build a machine to to build a thing, you actually have to know how the person making that machine and programming it has to know how to make the thing the machine is going to make. (laughs) Yeah, And the way you learn that is by doing it. Yeah, And I think that appreciation has grown since the pandemic. Things like vegan leather drive me crazy because I'm like, that's an oil product. It's yeah. plastic. Yeah. It, it, at least if you use an animal hide, especially like an animal that has been consumed. And otherwise, it's a byproduct that goes to waste if we don't use it. Right. <laughs> and that's worse. Really... Ha- being more reflective of how things happen, I think is, it can only be good. So Michelle, I feel that (laughs) you've really truly in my mind have mastered this recipe, even though you're not a master planner through 
<laughs> this experience of Michelle Varian and, and the curation um, journey that you've gone through scaling and, and growing your business, right? You have your store itself, but you've built this brand and this following that really is much bigger than the store itself. If someone's listening to this podcast and is thinking about opening a brick and mortar store or location, what would you say right now in this era of consumption that can happen online? What advice would you give and say, here's what you really need to have to survive? Conviction, mm-hmm. as well as flexibility. So that sounds counter, but both are equally important. Being able to respond to changes in the market, paying attention, really listening and watching and asking questions and being curious are extremely important. As a store owner and somebody who works with so many people who design and make things, only a small fraction of designers who I work with sustain that level of curiosity that made their first collections amazing. Mm -hmm. There is a tendency to stagnate and like this is the formula and this is what I do. And then not just that, but to morph into being more and more like everybody else. And I see that over and over again with product collections that I purchase. And and I make a point of telling those who I feel are exceptional in that 10 years down the road, they're still exciting me and presenting things I hadn't thought of and aren't necessarily the innovation zeitgeist. It's like you can have a recipe to make a good loaf of bread. But you don't always want white bread. Sometimes mm-hmm. you need some like nuts and fruit tucked mm-hmm. in. There's like a groundwork for what the recipe is. Yeah. But you have to keep iterating on it for people to be interested in it. Um, Absolutely. Keep the good stuff. Like we all love bread. If you don't like bread, you're not my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What, I don't understand. But. Yeah. That, yeah. I love the so, idea of conviction and flexibility. Yeah. That feels like a yeah. beautiful yin and yang to... Yeah, understanding your own point of view going into a venture that that is a lot of capital to be in brick and mortar. And it keeps you interested, too. Yes, absolutely. One of the other things that you got was I wanted to make sure to mention is who you work with Mm. and who is on your team is extremely important. And one of the things that it took me a while to learn was, one, being able to say no to a customer. Etc. And unambiguously, if you show any lack of conviction, yeah. it's not really no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you'll end up getting run over. But also, when you're hiring and working with other people, if there's a red flag, pay attention. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't get better. It never gets better. So if there is somebody who you think might be a little bit toxic, get rid of them. Because I always put it like if you've got a glass of water and it's a clear, clean, refreshing glass of water and it's a full glass of water, all it takes is one drop of poison to make all of the water poisonous. And if you've got a good team and somebody comes in who just doesn't have the right attitude, doesn't have the same level of enthusiasm, whatever it is, it doesn't get better. You're really better off cutting your losses and starting over. I think that's incredible advice right now with hiring being difficult. It might feel 
needed to staff, right, and do it quickly. I think this, it's contradictory, I think, right now with a lot of the challenges that businesses are mm-hmm. experiencing. You've been incredibly inspiring. Yeah, but we want to no. be <laughs> I mean, of service to you. And as Wendy and I are coming from different perspectives, and um, we always love to just give our thoughts and feedback if there's any challenge you are having right now that we can talk through and really understand what's sticky in your process and maybe something that we can think through together. I think one of the things I struggle with, and I think it's a very common struggle for business owners, is live-work balance. Mm -hmm. And partially, I think it's a little bit more difficult because when it's your business, it's your baby. So the, the lines are much blurrier. And I love what I do. So it doesn't feel like work. But figuring out how to get all the benefits of the work, and I cultivate tons of wonderful personal relationships mm-hmm. because of work, but figuring out how to make sure I'm doing everything I need to be generous with the people in my life who are not professional relations, those are things that I could definitely be better at. Yeah, I <laughs> totally get it. I had my business before I had my baby. And so (laughs) it's my original, my OG baby is my business. And I love the reason why I wanted to have a retail option or expression is what I call my retail shop Mm -hmm. was because those personal connections, I've always been in boutique retail. I know the importance that it is for me to engage with the general population every day Mm -hmm. because it does charge me up. It helps my brain think better and more creatively. So I totally hear that struggle, that push and pull because, and to be frank, I have zero answers. I've ruined a marriage. So I don't have a good answer. We're still friends. Like we, we figured it out. We, we understand that this is it. But I think, I think that struggle is really real for small business owners, for women in particular, women entrepreneurs have a really hard time shutting it off and not having things be emotionally pulled. And part of the reason why I've restructured my business was because more and more of my time was and energy was being spent helping and being available for the business relationships, like the relationship mm-hmm. part and not the transacting part, like the buying of goods and services from my business. So I'm like right there with you in that struggle. <laughs> and I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Norma? I heard a metaphor that has helped me in this space of mm-hmm. protecting energy, right? Yeah. You're in a place where your boat was sinking. You had too many people on your boat. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yeah. there's people on your boat that help you row. They help you manage the boat. Sometimes there's people and just riding along with you. Wait. Yeah. That's bringing the boat down. And right. once you start sinking, it's hard to get going again. So sometimes you do have to let go of maybe not relationships, maybe sometimes it is relationships, but just the time that you're giving to certain relationships that aren't keeping your boat afloat. And I think there is this like quantity conversation, especially with creatives that I think we're all about the quality, right? And if it feels good, let's take it on. But sometimes we do have to be mindful of that quantity that we're taking on and saying, how do we prioritize so that your boat stays afloat? And I've been very, especially after having my baby had to be intentional about that time spent, even though it might feel good to do certain things. I had to say, this is going to feel better. So I have to choose. And if you want to be the best version of yourself, you have to say no to almost everything, which means you're only saying yes to things that are truly enriching your life, whether it's economically, soulfully, culturally, socially, et cetera. My last thought on that for us, 
is that I started this thing called the salon at my flower mm-hmm. shop. And I invited mm-hmm. all of my favorite people to join me there. And it sounds like your design panels in a way, except for it was totally intentionally social and nobody was allowed to know what anyone did for a living, but they were just all my favorite people who I wanted to be around. And it was like mm-hmm. a way for me to carve out time to get that creative juices flowing sort of stuff that I get from these one-on-one interactions of people just flowing in and out of my store or like the relationships that I build, but I created a mm-hmm. box around it. And I was like, here's the time Let's for that to happen. It. Right. And it was yeah. just like, it was like a cocktail party that was fun. And, and a lot of stuff like this podcast was born out of that <laughs> night in a lot of ways. <laughs> but I think there's real value to that. Yeah. And also Norma, going back to what you're saying and like the number of people we have in our lives and, who are the ones who are actually giving back? And I think reciprocity is huge. Yes. I think we've all... It's transactional. I think it's transactional. You, <laughs> transactional love. Yeah. If you are a person with conviction and strength, you tend to attract a lot of people who don't have those yes. things. And, and sometimes, even though they're lovely human beings, they can be a suck. Mm-hmm. And they just take and take. And if I've had to do what I long ago coined as like divorcing friends, not like brutally, just like quietly, like mm-hmm. okay. gracefully. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is taking a lot out of me, but I'm not seeming to get anything out of it myself, you know? And so for me, reciprocity is a huge part of it. If somebody is going through a really tough time in their life, but they would do anything for you and they've done that for you, do anything for that person. Yeah. You know? This, um, yeah. This, I think we're I mean, all, yeah. this I is know. like therapy for me. I feel like, I feel like we're all best friends now. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a pleasure to meet you, Michelle. This yes. has been such an illuminating conversation. I, I just enjoyed hearing so much of what my heart has been singing for a while said back to me and from your perspective, it's just really nice to meet somebody who shares a lot of the same vision that we have for continuing to create meaningful exchanges with humans on all levels. So it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Michelle. Next time we're going to be all in one room having a glass of wine together. (laughs) I look forward to that. (laughs) Okay, before before we hop off, I need you to do a quick plug on your item that you are transacting on with us today. So I'll remind you it was your pillows. Yeah, Yeah. just a quick little. Now that we know you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, remind us. So I figured I would call out actually something that I design and make because honestly, that is a big part of what people come to at my shop. And what I started with are decorative pillows, which came from me working in fashion design previously. Mm. But during the pandemic, I had a lot more time for painting. And like everybody, we all were able to dive into things that maybe neglected parts of our lives or whatever. And while I had always done all of the designs for my pillows myself anyway, I just had a lot more time to paint. And funny enough, I ended up painting on craft paper because I couldn't get anything else. (laughs) And I had all these brown paper bags from groceries. What great therapy. um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I loved the way that the paint ended up like sitting on top of the brown paper. 
And that ended up inspiring an entire collection, not just of artwork, but also artwork that I have transposed onto my textile for decorative pillows, which um, I sell at the store and on our website. And each season launch a whole new collection of different patterns and colors. Beautiful. Um, and, uh, and they're all based on paintings. And you can actually purchase the paintings that the textiles are based on. I love one of my favorite pieces is called Happy Place. And a lot of the imagery that I was painting during the pandemic was very places I was not, these sort of fantastical landscapes with wild but subdued colors, not necessarily normal. Mm. I have no boundaries. Mm -hmm. I can make up whatever fantastical vessel I want to paint. <laughs> and it also captures you in a moment in time. Mm -hmm. So this is where Michelle was in, mm -hmm. in this mindset, in this mm -hmm. moment that we're all experiencing. They're made here in the U.S. We make them in-house. So the fabrics are printed out of house, but with my designs here in the U.S. And, and then we have our own seamstress. You could just have an ordinary pillow, but most people choose to purchase a pillow that's not just an ordinary pillow because it's an opportunity to bring something narrative or colorful, not just colorful, literally, but like figuratively as mm -hmm. well. That's beautiful. Um, I love narrative. That's such a beautiful way of describing your work and your perspective <laughs> and your lens. We'll just have little yes. Michelle's whisper on our couches. Yes, I'm ordering. I'm clicking to buy right now, just so you know, Michelle. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so again. much, Michelle. Yes. And we will see you Always. soon. This is not goodbye. You're, you're, I'm not going to let you go very far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely talk again soon. It was such a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much, Michelle. All right. Thank you both. Bye. Be well. This is Wendy and Norma inviting you to transact with love. <laughs> <laughs>